On this prequel episode, we've got our Ever After fan poll follow-up. We're learning about period films and previewing the remains of the day. Hello and welcome back to this film. It's like the podcast we're talking about movies that are based on books. Back to another prequel episode. Let's just get right into it with our patron shoutouts. We have two new patrons, not quite. but not really, <laughs> this week. We have one patron who is upgrading from the $2 level to the $5 level, getting gaining access to our bonus content. And that patron is Caleb, parentheses, NEM. I don't know what that stands for. I don't either. It shall remain a mystery. But thank you for upgrading and getting access to all of our bonus content, our entire backlog of bonus content, as well as future bonus content, which we will have an episode out in just a few days for Cinderella on Cinderella, the 1997 Rodgers and Hammerstein version. So look out for that uh, around the end of the week. You should be seeing that episode. And we have one returning patron at the $15 Academy Award winning level, and that is Jeff Niederhofer. Jeff, thank you for coming back and supporting us again. We appreciate it. And that leads us to our Academy Award winning patrons that we shout out every week on our prequel episodes every other week. And they are Paul Kadensminger, Ben Wilcox, Jeff Niederhofer, Teresa Schwartz, Ian from Wine Country, My Favorite Game, Winchester's Forever, Kelly Napier, Gray Hightower, Eli Young, Scratch, Just Scratch, Shelby Says Monsters and Mayhem is out now. That Darn Skag, V Frank, My Favorite Cinderella is the one from the Fable series of comics, and Alina Starkov. Thank you all very much for supporting us at the $15 level. We appreciate it very much. I'm trying to figure out what my favorite game means. <laughs> so there's a video game. That's the only thing I could find. I did a quick search. There's no video game called The Remains of the Day. There's a game called What Remains of Edith Finch. I don't know if that's what that's a reference to. Uh, I don't know. It's a very well-known, uh, critically like acclaimed game from a few years ago. Only thought because it's somewhat similar to The Remains of the Day. And that is, I believe, one of our name change patrons. So... Let us know, or maybe it's a reference to something else. Maybe you're cha- cheating yeah. on us and changing your name for maybe some other... Maybe that's not even for us. Yeah, maybe you're ch- changing your name for some other podcast. Uh, but either way, uh, thank you all very much for supporting us. It's a $15 level. For those of you who don't know, you get access to all kinds of stuff. Uh, the bonus content, early access, but then you also get priority recommendation at the $15 level, where if you have something you'd really like to hear us talk about, you recommend it, and we'll throw it as high on our list as we can put it. Oh! Alright, time to find out what people thought about Ever After. Yeah, well, you know, that's just like uh, your opinion, man. So we didn't get a ton of feedback. I'm annoyed for this about one. this. What, you're annoyed about it? The lack of comments. Yeah. We had all these people vote for it, and then yeah. like four people said stuff about it. I actually it. talked to, to Shelby about this, too, because she messaged me on Twitter and was like, it's weird. And I was like, it, yeah, it's weird. I just thought it was interesting because so many people said like, oh, this is, I love this. You know what I yeah. mean? I thought we would get more. And it's not, you know, whatever. Maybe people didn't see the polls. There's, you know, there's lots well, of reasons think, that, that people might not have left yeah. feedback. But it's it was surprising to me. I think that... One, I think we lost the favor of the algorithm gods. 
because we were posting during the bracket, we were right. posting super consistently and then we weren't. Right. Um, but also, I think it's possible that a lot of the people who voted in the bracket are not people who usually give feedback. Well, that's fair. I wasn't even necessarily talking about the number of people. Mm. I wasn't expecting, you know, dozens and dozens of comments. But this is less than we normally get. And for something that people had a choice in picking, I expected mm-hmm. or, you know, had a hand in choosing. I expected slightly more. That's all I'll say. I just... Mm-hmm. I was hope I was hoping to get more feedback, but it is what it is. Yep. Uh, we do have a handful of comments on Patreon. We had five votes for the movie and two for the book. Uh, my favorite Cinderella is the one from the Fable series of comic books. Said definitely the movie because it makes Danielle a real breathing human being that I can connect with. I don't necessarily fault the folklore, but due to their general brevity and the way they have been retold so many times, Cinderella feels more like a trope than a person that I can connect with and have empathy for. I think that makes sense. Yeah, that's a fair assessment. Um, It is something like what we're hitting on here is something that I actually really (laughs) love about folklore Mm. um, because it it is it's tropey. But I find that super fascinating because they're like the trope blueprints. Right. They're the origins yeah. of many of the tropes in, yeah. in, in a lot of ways. Yeah. Um, also, I have read a couple of the Fables comic books. I, I at one point was like, oh, I'm going to read all of these. Mm. And I get super overwhelmed by existing series of comics with dozens and dozens of editions um so i ended up never actually doing that but i did read the cinderella uh from fable town with love comic Mm. and really enjoyed it uh she's like a spy sweet in that series so kind of cool uh on facebook we didn't have any comments but we did have four votes for the movie uh zero for the book over facebook is the place where i really suspect we lost the algorithm very clearly yeah yeah Because we were getting very good engagement for us on Facebook (laughs) during the brackets. It's really frustrating that the algorithm exists. Yeah. At all. Yeah. Just show me the things that I follow. (laughs) And you can recommend me some other stuff, but just show me the things that I follow. Don't not show me things. that It's so frustrating. On Twitter, we had 11 votes for the movie and three for the book. Shelby says Monsters and Mayhem is out now, uh, said maybe I'm a sucker for the classic version in this case, but I'm going with the book. I enjoyed the movie, but I did find it a bit overstuffed with plot. Although I will say I liked how they combined the stepmother ruining the dress with the ball scene. I wasn't expecting that. Normally she ruins it before the ball. Yeah, well, that's in in the Disney version. Or you say, yeah, I I say normally in the Disney version. It's like, well, I think in the... In the Roger and the Hammer scene, though, at least the stage version that we mm-hmm. saw, I think it was I can't also. I remember if she does that. I'm fairly certain. Well, she does. Re- I remember her ripping it up. Yeah. And then she like spins and it all. Yeah. Well, at least in the stage. That happens. I mean, saw. that happens in other versions, but I think that's like kind of known from the 1950 Disney. Yeah, version, I'm not saying it's point. not. I'm just saying that there are. Yeah, yeah. It's not normally at the ball. It's normally. Um, And overstuffed with plot, that's a totally valid criticism of the movie. We talked about that, too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And there's just maybe a A few too many many things going on. Um, Ben Thompson said, it was interesting hearing about the different versions of Cinderella. Good episode, Heart. Thank you, Ben. Brief, but 
Yeah. I, fud- I fudged that one off of a different post because oh, we gotcha. had so few comments. Yeah. It's fine, though. On Instagram, we had seven votes for the movie and four for the book. Back from Neverland said, I agree with Katie. The movie is better. I love the small details y'all pointed out, and I can't think of another fairy tale retelling that uses proper restraint and is still not boring. I don't know if I've seen enough fairy tale retellings. I I think that's uh, an interesting and I would say accurate. Like for me, that feels like an accurate assessment of this retelling. It is like somewhat restrained. Yeah. Uh, In a way that something like the most recent Cinderella seems not to be. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Again, having not seen it. Um, it, I will say for my memory, the 2015, as much as I had some issues with the 2015 Cinderella, I don't remember that. I feel like that was fairly restrained in. Yeah. In sort of the, the, you know, the steps it like the the changes it made and the Mm -hmm. the liberties it took with the story. And I don't remember finding it boring. Again, I found it. Uh, it may be a little boring in the sense that I thought they could have made more I, changes. I don't, yeah, I don't I guess know that's that what I found saying. it. Uh, I don't know that I found that one boring, but I didn't find it like particularly interesting. And like, I guess it that's wasn't kind doing of what, anything super new and fresh. I with think it. I think that's kind of the point of what they're yeah. saying is that yeah, it's it's restrained, but it's still doing stuff that is interesting. It's right in that sweet spot. Yeah, uh, Corinne Neva said, "I love both for different moods." I grew up on the Grimm's version where I loved the brutal comeuppance for all the stories, really, and ever after for the daydream quality of it. But I think I would pick the movie because she was loved for her personality and it's fun. I will always love that in my book, the prince is fooled twice by the stepsisters cutting off parts of their feet to make the shoe fit and has to have a bird tell him, hey, so there's blood just streaming from her foot. You might want to ask a few questions as they're riding to his palace. Oh, that's We talked about that a little bit. That's a himbo. A, yeah, he's a little bit of a himbo. That's, that's from the Grimm's version. Uh, also, I really, I always thought that Lepu would bought their stuff either because he was obsessed with Danielle and was creepily touching her things, or because he was new to wealth and was trying to buy the trappings of ruling class life. Interesting. And, That's not the yeah. read I got on it. Like I said, I just assumed he was like because when you see it, I it seemed mm-hmm. like he was like a set. Like we said, like a yeah, just kind of a like skeezy, a, a ske- like selling yeah. like a black market, like. Mm-hmm. Buying stuff from one person and then like a like a pawn shop, mm-hmm. not that all pawn yeah, shop people I, all but. all interesting reads. I think his his character is just not developed enough. Yeah, he's, to know he's for sure what, what the motivation like is supposed to be. Two scenes, yeah, <laughs> or something like that. Yeah. So our listener polls winner was the movie with twenty seven votes to the books nine. There you go. So a, a bit of a, a runaway. Kind of what I expected. Yeah, honestly. Pretty much what I expected. All right, we do have a learning things segment this week, and what we're learning about are period films. No matter what anybody tells you, words and ideas can change the world. So learning about them, maybe not so much, maybe just more like chatting about them. Okay. Um, so <laughs> I thought this might be interesting to discuss because... I personally think that the terms period film, period piece, period drama, historical drama, costume drama, all of the above kind of get bandied about a bit. Um, And I think 
I think we all like generally understand what's meant by period film, mm-hmm. but like I was curious if there was an official definition or like actual criteria for what is what is considered a period piece. Like mostly I was just wondering if it's actually as simple as the story is set in the past. Cuz like our last episode was set during like the Renaissance kind of. Right. But I don't know that I would refer to that film as a period piece. I I, mean, I don't want to step on toes here with where you're going to go with this. I have not read it. But to me, just going in without any, mm-hmm. like, I think you could call it a period piece. I think you wouldn't because other other descriptors might supersede that. I have a note about that that's, later. That's yeah. kind of what, how I would go yeah. about it. Like, if something is... Um, there may be something like a genre that it fits into that supersedes yeah. it being a period piece, but I don't think it would be incorrect to call um, Ever After yeah. a period piece. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, I I don't have, it, yeah. yeah um, so, so I dove in to try to find out more, um, and after looking into it, it turns out that it actually is as simple as that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, I was just wondering. No, okay. <laughs> I mean, no yeah, totally. Yeah. Wikipedia uh, defines period piece, um, or I think theirs actually was like historical drama was the name of the article, but it's all kind of the same thing. Um, So Wikipedia defines it as a work set in a past time period, usually used in the context of film and television. Uh, Another definition I found was a work of art set in or reminiscent of an earlier time period. Um, TV tropes got a little more specific. They added, it's kind of hard to define what defines period films per se. Something that took place a decade ago could count technically, but period pieces set in the very recent past are rare unless it's to poke fun at the era in question, which I don't know if I necessarily agree I, with. I would only disagree insofar as I think the de- the, the, the delineation there would be it, it can be set in the very recent past as and be a period piece, even if it's not poking fun, as long yeah. as that area that that period that it set it in the recent past is distinct enough from our current period. Yeah. And I have some thoughts on That's, that. That, that is how I would say. So like something set in the early 2000s could be a period piece. <clears throat> Kind of at least I, I don't know if I would use that phrase, but I think you could you could argue in favor of calling it a period piece if it's because that like the fashion and the the, the pop culture and whatnot is distinct enough from our current. But something yeah, set like, four years ago, maybe not so much. Anyway, sorry, I don't again, I don't want to. Yeah, run all over jumping what way ahead of me. I'm sorry. I just want to talk about it as we're going and then, you know. Um, so at that point I got bored with researching because I wasn't, (laughs) I wasn't finding anything that was new or interesting. It was basically just the same pretty broad definition over and over. Uh, so I was just going to spitball some thoughts, uh, and we can chat about it and let you guys weigh in in the comment sections Uh after this episode goes up. Um, so I, I think for me, where my kind of curiosity about this came in was that while, yes, any film set in the past is technically a period piece, I feel like the term period piece and its synonyms are most frequently used to describe only specific types of historical films. 
often, often not always. Yeah. Like most frequently. Yes, like, most frequently. Yeah, like, and by by the broadest amount of people, yes. Yeah. Like anything you could vaguely like uh like to me, um, it seems most often it's like the Austin esque Oscar Beatty sweeping scenery kind of films yes. that usually get labeled a period piece. Right. Like anything that you could vaguely place anywhere from eighteen hundred to like the nineteen twenties. Yes. Western. I would extend it further back than that, but yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and I feel like these the types of movies that usually get this label are you are often like stylistically very similar, lots of emphasis on setting and costumes. Uh, the story often has something to do with like it's either a vaguely a coming of age kind of thing, hmm. or it's more frequently like pining for lost or unrequited love. Again, like Austin esque. Interesting. You know, I don't know if I would necessarily do make that same categorization. I'm not add, saying, I would not, I'm not, not I, I don't know if I would add those kind of like additional I'm not saying that that's the correct right. definition know, of yeah. a period piece. I'm saying that like from my perspective right. it seems like this is the type of film that I most often hear You're labeled period right. piece whereas other works that are set in the past I don't so much hear people call a period piece. Interesting. I'm going to stop. I, I don't want to keep jumping in and saying my thoughts because I'm <laughs> sure I'm just going to repeat that. Like, you know, I don't want to preempt what you're going to say. Um, oh, well, to to actually touch on something that you brought up earlier, um, I was thinking that, like, why I think that kind of narrow definition happens, at least for me, is that a film that's set in the past but is also another genre like yeah. you said, like for me, that other genre will trump the period piece label. Yeah. Like I would be more likely to call Ever After a fantasy than a period piece. I don't think I would because it doesn't have any fantastical elements. I think I just want to do that because it's based on a fairy tale. Like and I, I, I get agree that. with you that I get there's that not like like there's not magic in it yeah, or like fantasy I, creatures. I generally would to call something a fantasy, it would have to have some fantastical element mm -hmm. of some sort, whether that be magic or you know magical creatures or something. Yeah. Um. Or be set in a non-earth, you know, like yeah. even like even if it even if it doesn't necessarily have magic, like I could if it's set in a <clears throat> oh, like a, a made up kingdom. a made up kingdom that mm -hmm. you know trying to think of an example and i can't think of one because all of them have the magic. princess diaries too is set in a made up kingdom yeah <laughs> right well i guess an example like that's close and it does still kind of have magic not kind of it does have magic is princess bride but it's close yeah but it does have ma magical cre like the rous's and like it right. has yeah. but it's all stuff that's right on the line of like magic versus mm -hmm. you know what i mean and like the the, the resurrection pill, you know, like, but yeah. like you could make an argument that maybe he's, he's like literally, it's just like a, an adrenaline shot type of deal. Like, I don't know. Like, right. you know, you could probably think, come up I with I think a, my other thing with Ever After is that it feels kind of similarly Ren Fair ish yes. to me. It has the vibe of yeah. fantasy for It has sure. the fantasy the vibe. And aesthetic, yeah, definitely. But there are also a lot of like westerns that are period dramas but if you asked me i'd be like that's a western it's a western i wouldn't say oh yeah that's a period no. piece <laughs> but no, even okay. though it is not first my my addendum to this is that i would often refer to it maybe as both like mm -hmm. i would say like um it, depending on the film i might 
use both and I might use them interchangeably. Like I might, cause to me often period piece, I think what's the most interesting about this question is there are some movies that I might basically only refer to them as a, not only, but like mm-hmm. that might be the main thing I referred to them as. Whereas a lot of other movies like ever after, like, um, you know, pick a, a Western or, uh, or even, you know, like, a. um, trying to think of another example um like a spy movie set in like world war ii or something mm-hmm. you know i'm trying to think of I, I if there was like a spy movie set in world war ii or even any movie set in world war ii i would probably call it like a war movie or like yeah. a first yeah. and then i but i also might i might also refer to it as a period piece like i don't think i wouldn't you know so it, it is one of those things where it's almost usually like a secondary Mm-hmm. Again. And I wonder if that's just a self-fulfilling prophecy because we tend to think of period pieces like a little more narrow yeah. than what the actual definition is because the actual definition is is quite broad. And I think that's why is because the definition is so broad, it becomes kind of useless. That's fair. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like it, 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 as a primary descriptor, at least like because it is just anything set <laughs> more than five years ago, you know, that that makes use of that setting in a way mm-hmm. that is placeable. Like you can tell that it takes place during a time period, not now. Right. Um, because that's basically all there is to the definition. You kind of have to use other categorizations. You know, you have to mm-hmm. be like, oh, it's a it's a uh, yeah, it's a Western, but it's a it's a period Western. So like, right. you know, because there are modern Westerns like uh, Hell or High Water came out. I don't know, you know, five, six years ago, and it's set in modern, or what at the time, yeah, modern yeah. day Texas or whatever. But I would call that a Western, at least to some extent. It's, eh, it's, fu- it's fudgeable, but like I would probably call that a Western. Um, but at the time, I would not have called that, at least from my memory, I don't think it's set. I think it was set like contemporaneously, mm-hmm. roughly from when it came out. So I wouldn't call that a period piece, but I would call it a Western, whereas a Western set in the, you know, the thirties or whatever I would, or the 1890s or whatever I would call a Western. I guess maybe I'm period Western with the self-fulfilling prophecy thing. I'm more interested in like why it's this specific like time period and type of movie that I'm more likely to refer to as a period piece. Right. Because like, okay, two examples, um, something like Pride and Prejudice. I guess that was about, yeah, because that was the main yeah. one that jumps to my head. Is like, like Pride, Pride and Prejudice. Prejudice is a romance. Yes. But I'm more likely to refer to it as a period piece. Now, if we hmm. go to something a little bit more um, recent in the scope of history, um, what is the name of that movie? Um, uh, You're a bird, I'm a bird. Gah. Uh, that sounds familiar, but I need more. You're a bird, I'm a bird. What is the name of that movie? It's is a Nicholas Sparks the... movie. The Notebook. Oh. The Notebook. Uh, well, the Notebook kind of does like a time jump around thing, okay. but the bulk of the story is set in like the 40s, Yeah. making it a period piece. But I'm more likely to refer to The Notebook as a romance. Yeah. I think a big part of it to me, and maybe you're going to, again, I, I'm... I don't want to jump ahead. And, it's fine. And, I'm, I'm, it's fine. Um, is that for me, I think the thing that can lend to us categorize, like mm-hmm. calling something a period piece more prominently 
is how much of a character the era is. Okay. How 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 important the time period is to the story and how much it is like infused in it. So like here's another example that I would actually probably call a period piece uh, at least to some extent um when describing it even though it's very much a whole specific genre on its own and co- multiple genres is Stranger Things. Mhm. Stranger Things is a period piece. Yes, the eighties is its own. It's effusive within and, yeah. the show. Yeah, yeah. That's in the a fair same point. way that something like in Pride and Prejudice, the the again because of like in 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 Pride and Prejudice, the 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 morality, like the the mores of the time period. Obviously, the the costumes and everything, but that's always mm-hmm. true for like every movie. But like the um the characters' actions and how they act and how they're how they interact with each other is very much tied to the time period that it takes place, at Mm -hmm. least to some extent in a way that makes it more of a period piece than, than, you know, something, uh, something like maybe ever after where it doesn't feel as tied to the time period. That's when it takes place, but like the characters and there is quite, I mean, there's Kings and like, it's not that it's not there, but it just, I don't know. And it is, I think the whole thing, what it really boils down to is it's it's just vibes. Like it's just, you, (laughs) like, it's like, you just get the vibe of the thing and Mm -hmm. you're like, that's a period piece or it's not, I don't know. Like you can just, you just feel it. Yeah. And I think it does kind of come down to how much of a character the time period is Mm -hmm. in the same way that like in some, you know, shows or whatever, how much of a character the setting is can not, you know, not that that has its own genre, but like there are some shows and some movies where the, the setting of the the thing is as much of a character as the characters are. Mm -hmm. And I think there are some shows and movies where the time period that takes place is as much of a character quote unquote, as the characters are and other things that take place in other time periods where that isn't the case. And so we don't call them period pieces. Anyways, at least that's kind of what I think like where I would land on it. I also think, um, and I think you kind of brought this up earlier um, for some stuff. Like once you get around like mid century ish, I think it feels more modern and familiar and feels a little less like history with a capital H. So I feel like maybe we're less likely to refer to that stuff as a period piece for that reason. Yeah. Like the perks of being a wallflower is set in like 1991. Right. But but I wouldn't refer to it as a period piece. No, because, and and that's it is. It is. But, but there's also shows and movies and stuff that intentionally try to make things feel more timeless than they are. True. Or not, you know, make them feel more timeless than the period that they're set. Um, because I was just thinking of another example, like a recent example of, uh, um, Goodfellas. Mm -hmm. I wouldn't call that a period piece necessarily, but the eighties is, but a big part of that too is that we span multiple time periods so it kind of right. gets complicated because yeah. we're, we're in the 50s and 60s for a while or whatever right. and then we go to the 70s and 80s and so it's hard to like you can't nail down a single period of time there so it's hard to call it a period piece in that regard mm-hmm. um and it's also much more focused on the characters and what they're doing and less about the time period even though that it plays a role it's not it just feels different i don't know it, it is i like i said i think it's just purely like vibes <laughs> All right. It's the same way you just what what is and isn't porn. It's purely vibes based. Like there's no you can't 
You know what I mean? Like you can't. I can't define a period film, but I know it when I see it. You know it when you see it. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) All right. Well, thank you for letting me (laughs) ramble incoherently after my research segment did not go as planned. Um, Please sound off in the comments. Let us know what you think defines a period slash historical slash costume piece slash film slash drama. All those things. Yeah. Uh, is it the vibes or it's is vibes. it something else? It's the vibes. To be fair, it's uh, the vibes is is everything. Like, that's also how you determine if a movie's good, whether anybody wants to admit it or not. Yeah. It's purely the vibes <laughs> because it sums up everything. There's this effervescent quality. They're like, no, nah, that's not even the right word. There's this, uh, like, sum total quality of a thing. And that's how you decide if something's good or not. It's the same thing. Like, it, mm-hmm. it, there isn't... As much, you know, you can look at the technical stuff, but when you're deciding, like deep down, whether you think something is good or not, you're not usually, unless you're doing something, unless you have like a very detailed rubric that you're using. um, Even if you think you have a detailed rubric in your head, unless you're literally like filling out a detailed, like point sheet rubric or something, it's all vibes based. And then anybody who says different is lying. Like it's. (laughs) It just, it just is. This is how everything works, like, in terms start, of criticism. So I'm going to start citing the vibes in my final verdicts. It, I, I actually, I do love that term only because I do think it, it's, it's a, it encapsulates, and I'm sure there's other previous terms for the same, you know. Mm-hmm. There's, there are other terms that have gone, come and gone through, through history that describe the same sort of thing. But it does capture how I, at least take in a film or a piece of media or whatever and assess it Mm -hmm. and then decide whether I like it or not. It's, and I think it's how everybody does it again, whether they admit it or not. I think it is kind of how everybody (laughs) assesses media. So, but to kind of sort of counterpoint, I think it is possible to be like, I recognize that this is a well-made piece of art, but the vibes were not there for me. Yes, that is true. But even that, I still think I'm. I guess I'm maybe using vibes more broadly. Mm-hmm. I'm using it as like again an all-encompassing, like nebulous sort of arithmetic that your brain does mm-hmm. almost subconsciously, and and it doesn't necessarily mean you have to like the thing. It just, it, it, I don't know. I'm yeah. doing a bit. It, like I, I get what you're saying, and I, yeah, I do. like uh, 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 blue is the warmest color. I recognized was a very well-made film, but the vibes were not there for me. Oh, really? I thought you liked that. Did you I, it was fine. Okay. Yeah. Um, and I, I, yeah, it, yeah, it's, yeah, I don't know. It's interesting. It's an interesting discussion. I like, like Katie said, we'd be happy to hear, very interested to hear what other people think about it. So time now for us to learn a little bit more about the book, The Remains of the Day. Well, no gentleman call us loud, of course. Uh, if two members of staff happen to fall in love and decide to get married, there is nothing one can say. But what I do find a major irritation are those persons who are simply going from post to post looking for romance. For the past 30 years, This has been the world of Stevens the butler. A man cannot call himself well-contented until he has done all he can to be of service to his employer. Within the protective walls of Darlington Hall, 
What happens within this house during the conference could have repercussions on the whole course that Europe is taking. I understand fully. He has led a life of perfect order and total control. You don't like to have pretty girls on the staff, I've noticed. Might it be that our Mr. Stevens fears distraction? The Remains of the Day is a 1989 novel by British author uh, Kazo Ishiguro. Uh, Sir Kazu Ishiguro. Uh, he's a novelist, screenwriter, musician, short story writer. Um, he was born in Nagasaki in Japan um, and moved to Britain in 1960 with his parents when he was around five. Um, he's considered one of the most celebrated contemporary fiction authors writing in English. Um, another of his novels that you might recognize is 2005's Never Let Me Go. That's like his other hmm. big one. Uh, he was awarded the Nobel Prize in Literature in 2017. So that's pretty... Uh, I guess they need Nobel Prizes in Literature as like a... Like a career. Yeah, it's like an overall okay. thing. It's, it's not, not like, not a, oh, you wrote a great book. Work. No. Okay. So uh, The Remains of the Day follows the character Stevens, who is a butler with a long record of service at Darlington Hall, which is a stately home near Oxford in England. Uh, and he uh, reminisces about events at Darlington Hall in the 1920s and 1930s, although I believe the novel is actually set in the 50s. Um, so a period piece. Mm -hmm. uh, this is uh, if it's like the movie, it's there's I don't know if it is, but you it's like there's like a flashback, mm -hmm. or it's like set in two time periods. It's post war right, yeah. and, and during the war yeah. or pre war. I think it's like pre post and pre war. It sounds like it's a little bit of all three, maybe. Yeah. Uh, so this is one of the most highly regarded post-war British novels. It won the Booker Prize in 1989, uh, and it ranks 146th on a Stanford University list of the best 20th century English language fiction. In 2007, The Remains of the Day was included in a Guardian list of books you can't live without, and also in a 2009 1,000 Novels Everyone Must Read list. Um, on November 5th of 2019, the BBC News listed The Remains of the Day on its list of the 100 most influential novels. Huh. Um, so according to literary scholar Stephen Connor, The Remains of the Day... Um, thematizes is that a, yeah I'm i was about to say pretty what? sure is how that word is pronounced i looked that one up too and i never remember to make notes thematizes. in the actual thematizes thematizes because what's funny because when you say it it's thematic thematically right. but then you would say thematize. thematize i hate that i don't like thematize that sounds thematize. fake thematize. yeah that sounds fake i don't like that the uh, thematizes the idea of english national identity uh, in the main character's view, the qualities of the best butlers, which involve restraining personal emotions in favor of keeping up appearances, are, identi are quote, identified as essentially English. Um, I mean, it is the stereotype. Based on, yeah, yeah, based on stereotypes of English people that I'm familiar with, that sounds correct. Yep. Uh, Connor further argued that early critics of Remains of the Day, um, who saw it as a novel about Japanese national identity, were mistaken, saying, quote, there seems to be no doubt that it is Englishness that is at stake or under analysis in this novel. 
and I feel like early critics of Remains of the Day may have been a little racist. I mean, they saw the author's name, yeah. maybe, and were like, there you go, and didn't yeah. realize, maybe they no. didn't, well, to be fair, back then you might not have known, and, uh, like, not to be fair, but, like. But if they read the book. Yeah. Well, I mean, maybe they, because, I, I, I don't know, I'm, I, I don't know enough to say whether there's any, court like, Mm-hmm. correlation between that type of um you know uh, uh that type of person like national identity mm-hmm. between japan and, and and britain i don't know if they share any similarities there i have no idea Fair. but i'm saying if you just saw the author's name well right and if, then you like, didn't couldn't google oh he moved to britain when he was five so like this is about growing you know like mm-hmm. this is about his british identity. i don't know i'm i don't know I could see. I mean, if you just said to me, like, oh, as uh, author of Japanese descent wrote a, a book about, like, post-World War II, what do you think it's about? Like, but most obvious guess is, like, oh, it's about, like, the aftermath of, like, the atomic bombs and, like, losing the war. Yeah, and right. Blah, blah, blah. Yes. Yeah. But, like. I, I, I'm a little ways into the book, and it seems pretty clear to me that if you read the book, you probably would be like, oh, yeah, this is about being British. I Yes, I get that. And it's clearly set in Britain, and it's about a British butler. Like, I'm not I'm just saying that I I don't know, like, if you're trying to read deeper into it, if you mm. just if you didn't if you thought it was like a Japanese author selling a story set in post-war Britain mm-hmm. that. If you didn't know any, and again, I'm not trying to, it's very likely that it's just racism or whatever, yeah. but that, that there could be, because it's not saying. Like drawing some kind of parallel. Yes. Between, yeah. Like, I, I could see an, a, a, a critic or somebody trying to read deeper into it and go, oh, well, may, you know, sure, it's set in Britain, but it maybe it's, it's actually about mm-hmm. sort of Japanese sentiments and stuff like that. And it's just using this mm-hmm. setting to explore those ideas. And again, if you didn't know, oh, he mm-hmm. was raised in, in like he doesn't remember Japan. He was five when he moved. You know what I mean? Like, right. I don't know. I, I, I think I think it's potentially understandable, but also maybe not. I have no idea. <laughs> I'm just ran wildly <laughs> speculating here. So, all right, time to learn a little bit more about the remains of the day. The film. Good-looking woman. The first-rate housekeeper is essential in a house like this for great affairs are decided. But as the world outside was changing... The United States does not want war any more than you do. On the other hand, neither would we care for peace at any price. So was the world inside Darlington Hall. You do realize that over the last few years, his lordship has been the most important pawn that the Nazis have in this country. It is not my place to be curious about such matters. We have some refugee girls on the staff. You'll have to let them go. They're Jews. How long can he shut his eyes to what he sees around him? If those girls go, I shall leave this house. I'd be lost without her. How long can he close his heart? Mr. Stevens. I accepted Mr. Ben's proposal of marriage. You have my warmest congratulations. To what he feels inside. The Remains of the Day is a 1993 film directed by James Ivory, uh, also directed A Room with a View, Howard's End, and wrote Call Me by Your Name. Uh, it was written by Ruth Prower, uh, wait, where'd it go? Ruth Prower Jabvala. I also could not find a good pronunciation for this, uh, who basically was James Ivory's co writer, unlike everything mm. from what it looked like. Wrote Howard's End, A Room with a View. I love A Room with a View. I have not seen it. Bunch of other stuff. Uh, the film stars Anthony Hopkins, Emma Thompson, James Fox, 
Christopher Reeve, Peter Vaughn, Hugh Grant, Michael Lonsdale, Tim Piggott-Smith, and Lena Headey. Yes, that is Lena Headey from Game of Thrones. Hmm. She was like 20 or something in this. Or maybe even younger than that. I don't know. She was one of her earlier roles. The film has a 95% on Rotten Tomatoes, an 86% on Metacritic, and a 7.8 out of 10 on IMDb. Uh, And she's actually one of three people from Game of Thrones in this show. And I don't know if I mentioned Peter Vaughn was one of the other ones. I think the uh, the third person I didn't make it into my credits here. Uh, Peter Vaughn, I believe, was the um, the old Meister at Winter's Keep who like died after like the actor died Mm -hmm. after like the first or second season. Um, And then there was one other guy who and I again, I don't think he was in here. The film made $63.9 million against a budget of $15 million and was nominated for eight Oscars, including Best Picture, Best Actor for Anthony Hopkins, Best Actress for Emma Thompson, Best Director, Best Adapted Screenplay, Best Art Direction, Best Costume Design, and Best Music Original Score, but it did not win any of them. Oh. I don't know. Let's see, it was 93. I don't know what else was. Well, it would have been the 94 Oscars. I'm not sure what if something cleaned up that year. Oh, Schindler's List cleaned up in 94. Oh, Philadelphia was also that year. But yeah, Schindler's List I mean, cleaned up. When you're nominated in one of the other movies is Schindler's List. Yeah, it's a, you're going to have a tough time. <laughs> yep. Yes, indeed. So the novel originally was set to be adapted by a completely different director, Mike Nichols, who's most known for regarding Henry the Birdcage and Charlie Wilson's War. And the script was going to be by Harold Pinter. Uh, And apparently some of Pinter's script did end up being used in this film, but his name ended up being removed from the script. And we'll get to why they ended up not being (laughs) involved with the film uh, here at some point a little bit later. But he basically had his name removed from the script because it was not enough of him in it to he didn't want his name in it anymore. Uh, So uh, on inside the actor's studio, Anthony Hopkins, sorry, Sir Anthony Hopkins, because he is a knight, said that he got tips on how to play Butler from a real life Butler, Cyril Dickman, who served for 50 years at Buckingham Palace, I believe, as the primary Butler. Uh, Dickman said, quote, there's nothing to being a Butler, really. When you're in the room, it should be even more empty. Wow. End quote. <laughs> I feel like that is like the ultimate butler position. Yep. Like you're you're the butler to end all butlers when yeah. you buttle at Buckingham, at Buckingham Palace. Palace. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So uh, the part of Miss Kenton, who ends up being played by Dame Emma Thompson in the film, is one of only three movie roles, supposedly, this is IMDb trivia, for which Meryl Streep had ever been turned down. Now, we will get into why right now. According to a book called Hit and Run that came out, uh, I don't remember when it came out, but it was about the 1990s at Sony Pictures, Columbia Pictures, and TriStar. uh, Basically about like... Like what was going on. What was going on in those studios Mm -hmm. during the 90s. The reason that Mike Nichols and Meryl Streep didn't uh, direct and star in the film was because of the budget. So apparently the budget got slashed because executives at the time were unhappy with the rising cost of production and how much money they were spending on talent. Uh, and so they decided to slash the budget for the film from apparently $30 million down to like $15 million. And when that happened, uh, Mike Nichols and Meryl Streep were no longer on the project. I thought you were, maybe you were going to say it was because Meryl Streep wasn't British. Uh, no, not, that doesn't seem to be the case. It was purely because they couldn't afford her after they <laughs> cut the budget. <laughs> And said, got Emma Thompson. <laughs> Can't afford Meryl Streep anymore, guys. Yeah. And uh, then my last note here, some other people who were considered 
um, or one other person who was sorry, a couple other people who were considered for roles. One for the role of Stevens, uh, who was played by Anthony Hopkins in the film. Uh, the role was initially offered to John Cleese, who actually loved uh, Ish- Ishiguro's novel. However, he withdrew after he read Harold Pinter's draft of the script, which mm-hmm. is funny because it didn't end up mostly being used. But he didn't like Pinter's draft because he loved the novel so much. And he said Pinter, quote, took the humor out of it and made it relentlessly down. Oh. <laughs> According to John Cleese. And he didn't want to be part of it after that. Uh, and then also at one other point uh, in time, uh, the role of, uh, what is her name? Uh, Miss Kenton uh, was courted to Angelica Houston, but hmm. did not end up landing a part. Instead, went with Emma Thompson. So Could have had back-to-back yeah. Angelica. Yeah, we've had a lot of movies, honestly, for <laughs> how, like, I mean, she's been in quite a bit of stuff, but not like... You know, not like Meryl Streep or something. We haven't had a single Meryl Streep movie yet. So um, I think it is interesting that, yeah, we've had so many movies with Angelica Houston. You know what else is interesting about that to me? I guess I don't know at what point in her career Emma Thompson was at this time. Very early, I think. Okay. I could be wrong. It seems like Meryl Streep to Emma Thompson would not be that much of a a paycheck cut. It (laughs) It seems like to me. Definitely wouldn't. I guess in in that in that time. Yeah, definitely in the time <laughs> period. I think even today, like I, regardless of time period, I do not think Emma Thompson costs nearly as much as Meryl Streep does. But okay, I guess I just like Emma Thompson. I I don't. I, I have no. I like Emma Thompson as well. I'm just saying I she's would, not Meryl Streep I, I in terms of Emma prestige. Thompson as much as Meryl Streep. There you go. I'm here for you, Dame Emma Thompson. <laughs> Fantastic. Defending you. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, I uh, she was in Howard's End as well, so there's a connection there with mm. um, with the writer and the director, yeah, 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 which would make sense, and also why Anthony Hopkins because he was also in Howard's End, so there you go. This is just a Howard's End reunion. It really it is, apparently. Like. That's all I got for that. Uh, before we wrap up, we wanted to remind you that you can do us a giant favor by supporting us on Patreon, as we mentioned at the top, and by following us on social media. Please follow us on social media and respond, give us comments about stuff. Tell us Look what you, tell us what you think a period piece yeah, is. Yeah, we want we were, we're really interested in hearing that discussion continue about period pieces and what makes a period piece. So go follow us on Facebook, uh, Twitter, Instagram, all those places. Also, before we wrap up, we wanted to mention that this was a patron, an Academy Award winning patron request by Eli Youngs. So Eli, thank you for recommending the remains of the day. We're looking forward to checking it out. Where can the people watch it? Well, as always, you can check your local library. Probably a pretty good chance they have both the book and the movie. Seems like a, yeah. Um, Or if you still have a local video rental store, you can support them. Lord knows they need it. Uh, Otherwise, you can stream this with ads on Tubi. I saw that. It's on Tubi, yeah. Yeah. Um, Or you can rent it for around 3 to $4 on Amazon, Vudu, Apple TV, Red... uh, YouTube, Redbox, DirecTV, or AMC Theaters on Demand. There you go. I'm interested to check this one out because it looks painfully British. (laughs) (laughs) The book so far is very British. (laughs) 
Yeah. I am interested to see. Uh, I don't know. It, I just it's one of those movies that I've heard of. Yeah. And just knew nothing and still feel like I know nothing about like it's about, it's about a butler. It's about a butler. But and I just don't know what like what the point is. You know what I mean? Like I, I'm very interested to see like what is this movie doing? What is it saying? I think I don't know what it's going to be saying. But I think, based on what I have seen and read thus far, that there's going to be um, a pining, unrequited love between uh, Anthony Hopkins and Emma Thompson. Thompson. Interesting. That's my prediction. There you go. Well, we shall see. (laughs) And we shall see in one week's time when we're talking about the remains of the day. Until that time, guys, gals, my binary pals, everybody else. Keep reading books, watching movies, and keep keep being awesome. awesome.